You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Most enterprises use disparate systems to manage spend. The result? A reactive manual approach. CFOs and controllers, you deserve better. You deserve a unified spend platform from Brex. Brex makes it easy to proactively control spend with cards, spend management, travel, and bill pay in one place. You can create budgets with controls built in, track and adjust in real time to keep teams accountable, and automate compliance to close the books faster. Ready to control your spend with one unified platform? Visit Brex.com. As with most episodes of this podcast, today's interview actually happened two months ago, and I've been looking forward to finally sharing this conversation with Meredith Aaliyah Wells. She's an actor and singer who discovered her love and talent for dancing only after she started using a wheelchair. No one is guaranteed their health and the level of health that they have at this very moment. And I think it's important to just focus on what we can do like every day and not get too far ahead of ourselves. Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, featuring conversations with fellow creatives about the realities of life in the arts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and to support the work of this podcast, go to donate.winmepodcast.com, where you can choose between a one-time donation or ongoing monthly giving. Well, here we are at the end of October, and as I mentioned, today's interview actually took place back in August. Meredith was in Cleveland at the time, which has pretty much been her base of operations, so to speak, since 2017. So when I graduated from uh, UMass Amherst, I moved to Cleveland for about two years, and I was dancing in a physically integrated company here in Cleveland. And at the end of two years is when I kind of started jumping around a bit more, and um, I definitely get a lot of work here, so I come back pretty often. But um, <laughs> makes sense. But yeah, I was in Portland all last summer, and I went to Beijing, and so I've been here and there and everywhere these days, which has been exciting. <laughs> but like most of us, COVID has sidelined her performing career and brought on its own complications. Even right now, um, in quarantine and all this stuff, like my goal all the time is just to make sure that I am taking care of myself in the best way that I can to minimize my symptoms affecting my work. 
And that brings me to the reason for such a long gap between our initial interview and the release of this episode. It was actually a suggestion from Meredith to wait and have our conversation be a part of Dysautonomia Awareness Month. <laughs> now, I know you're probably saying, um, what was that? And to be honest, I hadn't heard of dysautonomia either until I met and talked with Meredith. It's basically an umbrella term for a range of medical conditions that affect our autonomic functions. In other words, those bodily functions that happen automatically, like a heartbeat or temperature control. And today, Meredith will talk about her particular condition and how it has affected her as a performer. But one interesting thing happened as I was editing this episode and doing more research. Several years ago, I was diagnosed with a particular heart irregularity, and as it turns out, that condition falls under dysautonomia. I experience what's called cardiac syncope and vasovagal syncope. <laughs> you had no idea when you started listening today that this was going to be a medical episode. Well, syncope is basically a fancy word for fainting. And the fainting that I've experienced is due to both cardiac or heart-related issues, as well as vasovagal, which basically means stressful or traumatic triggers that cause a sudden drop in heart rate and blood pressure, leading to fainting. So I say all of this to say that Meredith and I share dysautonomia in common. However, her condition is very different from mine and comes with its own array of symptoms, and we'll be going into more detail about that. Something else we share in common is actually common among most performers, an attraction to and a desire to be on stage from a very young age. My first musical was Fiddler on the Roof back in the ninth grade. For Meredith, it was a different classic Broadway show. So I started theater in the seventh grade. I uh, did a production of Annie in middle school. Um, it was funny because the year before that, I remember auditioning for the musical and just having a horrendous audition. I mean, I had never sung in front of people. I was so nervous. I'm pretty sure I sang the song like three times the tempo. <laughs> and um, then the next year I like came back and then somehow like landed the lead in the middle school musical. And my mom was kind of shocked. I don't think she actually thought I was going to get it when I told her that, you know, I got a call back and she was like, what for? I was like, Annie, duh. Cause that was me <laughs> as a little kid. And um, yeah. So I, I was in that production in middle school and just got bit by the bug. And, you know, I um, quickly after that was like, I want to do this for a living. I want to do, I want to perform for the rest of my life. Like that's what I want to do when I grow up. And everyone, you know, when you're a kid, they're like, Oh, that's great. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think especially at that age, people expect you to grow out of that. And I just, yeah. Never grew out of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you're still you're still that Annie, just just looking for the the next tomorrow. Yeah, especially <laughs> right. these days. <laughs> so then you specifically chose a college with theater and that kind of training in mind. Yeah. Um, so I decided, you know, when it came that time in high school that I was going to uh, pursue a college degree, and um, ended up deciding on UMass Amherst. The University of Massachusetts Amherst actually has a long line of notable graduates, 
From the world of sports, there's Julius Irving, the Hall of Fame basketball player known as Dr. J with the Philadelphia 76ers. And from the world of entertainment, the list of graduates includes Michael Haley, famed producer of the HBO miniseries Angels in America. And there's also singer Natalie Cole and actor Richard Gere. So Meredith majored in theater and was following in the footsteps of other talented individuals. But as so often happens, once we start planning and looking forward to the future, life has other ideas. I started school and about a month into freshman year of college. So, you know, I'm doing it for real. We're really going for it. And then a month into pursuing the degree, I just start getting super dizzy all the time and lightheaded and nearly passing out. And I just didn't know what was wrong. And, you know, other things started kind of cropping up, like um, just digestive issues and things like that. And it was a really scary time before I had a diagnosis because I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know what the path ahead was going to be. And there was a lot of questioning whether or not I was going to be able to pursue this path. Um, And around right before my sophomore year of college, I, um, I started using a wheelchair and around that same time, I got my diagnosis of POTS, which stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, <laughs> very long. It's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've had lots of practice saying it at this point, though, so that's good. And um, it's a form of dysautonomia or autonomic dysfunction. So essentially everything that's affected by your autonomic nervous system that you don't think about can be affected. Now, there are about 15 different types of dysautonomia. Mine is the most common, whereas Meredith's condition affects about 1 to 3 million people worldwide. So, what exactly is POTS? Here's Mayo Clinic physician Philip Fisher to explain it a little more. For patients, POTS is feeling tired, not having much energy, not being able to live a normal life. For physicians, it's POTS, P-O-T-S, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Tachycardia means fast heart. One of the signs of this condition is when somebody changes their posture, their position, from lying down to standing up, the heart beats excessively fast. That's the postural orthostatic tachycardia. The S of POTS is the syndrome. It's the collection of symptoms, including dizziness, headache, fatigue, tummy upset, um, that gets people down. So POTS is a condition that makes people feel tired, makes them feel run down, often dizzy and very uncomfortable with headaches or tummy aches. Anybody can be affected, but there seem to be two kinds. There's the adult kind of POTS, which affects mostly women between age 30 and age 50. Um, And then what I see as a pediatrician, it affects teenagers. Majority are girls, but it can be girls or boys. And they're what parents would think are the ideal children, high achieving, hardworking, thriving in life, and then they get sick. But instead of bouncing back from it, then it tips their involuntary nervous system out of balance and they're left tired and run down, their blood flow is disturbed, so they can't get the blood going to the right place at the right time. So they stand up and feel dizzy, they can't move their food through their intestines well and they feel run down and uncomfortable. As Dr. Fisher mentioned, POTS is a syndrome covering a whole host of symptoms that can be different for each individual. 
Yeah, yeah. So heart rate, blood pressure, um, breathing, your digestive system, even simpler things like your pupils dilating um, seems so silly. But, you know, my friends will always joke about how, you know, I go outside and I just like can't see. I'm just like Belma without her glasses for a few seconds. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So freshman year is when you start to have these symptoms. Don't really know what it is, but it isn't until your sophomore year that you actually get the diagnosis specifically? Yeah. I got the diagnosis right before my sophomore year and that it was good to have clarity as to what was happening. Um, but with dysautonomia, there's also, you know, different prognosises depending on what the cause of your POTS is. And because it's a syndrome and I don't know the cause of my POTS still to this day. So I don't really know what the prognosis is. And because of that, I was very nervous to get into or continue the path of performing. I wasn't sure if I was physically going to be capable of doing that. And I tried really hard right after my diagnosis to, you know, really get into things where my disability didn't affect it as much, at least like it felt that way, you know, like being in the costume shop more, I was taking directing classes. I was really trying to find a facet of theater where like what I looked like and like my type and all that kind of stuff just didn't matter. But I felt like the more I went in that direction, the more I just felt called to perform. And I kind of just had to make a decision at that point to be like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But I know that if I don't do this, I'm going to be very unhappy for the rest of my life. And I'm always going to wonder what if. So I just like, I have to, like, I, I just, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that like, this is what I have to do. This is what I want to do. And I really just can't let other people's expectations of what I can, can and can't do with this disability stop me from doing that. Cause that's just listening to everyone else. And I'd be really unhappy. But I would assume that it was at least a joint effort as far as with your doctors, obviously parents and, and that kind of supportive group to figure out how this path can happen. Um, with my doctor, we, you know, we're working on managing the symptoms. So every contract I have um, is always important. And I feel like as time has gone on, it's gotten better and better, thankfully. Um, as far as management goes, the you know, I, I'm still, <laughs> I'm sick. I'm still chronically ill. It's chronic. It's not going away. Um, you know, my parents were very supportive. Um, I think, you know, they were nervous in the way that I was nervous. But I think when I made that decision, I had the confidence behind it. I think that they kind of followed suit. Hmm. So I was really lucky to have that kind of support from them. At that time, obviously, you, you can look back on it now, but at that time, what did that future look like? What kind of roles did you think you could do? How far did you think you could go in performing? I mean, when I say I didn't know how, like there was no, I had no frame of reference, really. Um, and around the same time is when the first person in a wheelchair was on Broadway. So mm. that was like the first time I was really seeing, okay, this is possible, but you know, also our disabilities, like me and Allie Stroker's disabilities are different. And um, so, it, you know, it was really hard for me to say how far I thought I was going to go. I think at that point I was still in an educational setting. So I was really just focused on doing the best I could in that educational setting and, you know, crossing that bridge when we got there, like everything, 
especially pre-diagnosis, was just one step at a time and one just really having to live in the moment and really having to focus on what you can do each and every day because you don't, no one is guaranteed their health and the level and the of health that they have at this very moment and um, the quality of life that they have tomorrow or next week or a year from now. So I think it's important to just like focus on what we can do like every day and not, you know, get too far ahead of ourselves as far as like what we want to accomplish and where we think our career is going to go. Cause every time I think my career is going in one direction, I just like totally get hit with a detour, <laughs> at least in my experience. <laughs> um, I was a theater major to begin with, but, um, after becoming disabled, I ended up, I mean, it's not because I, because of my disability or like getting sick, but I had always done musical theater up until that point. I don't really know why I decided to do theater um, and not musical theater, but I realized that my, my one true love was musical theater, whether it's singing, dancing, and acting together or separately. Like I really enjoy those three art forms and how they can intertwine. Meredith started out with a general education in theater, but eventually decided to do an individualized concentration in musical theater. She was grateful, though, for the broad range of subjects she learned. The degree in theater felt safer in a way because it was, you know, well-rounded. You were learning about costume design and scenic design. There were options, and I feel proficient in a lot of things in theater now, which is great. I'm really grateful for those first two years in the program, um, but I'm glad that I decided to take a more focused approach my last two years in school because I think it really paid off. Yeah, I mean, it's so important that not only in our general life we need to be well-rounded, but specifically within theater to know what this department's doing and that department's doing because we are just one of many cogs on a wheel, you know, making the whole thing run. Yeah, I think um, it's good to be well-rounded in that way. If nothing else now, as someone who mostly just performs and writes, just having that appreciation and understanding of all the work that's going into it, I think definitely is such a good thing to have as a performer. One of the greatest things about the performing arts is that it allows us to share stories and experiences with an audience. In her senior year, Meredith brought together all of the theatrical training and skills she learned to write her own one-woman show called Dysfunctioning Just Fine. So the show is, you know, about my diagnosis journey and my, in the parallel storyline of my first queer relationship. So when I was writing, I took into consideration the fact that I am the performer and I didn't write anything into the show that I couldn't physically do. And also it's a one woman show. So the whole time I'm on stage. And at first I had an intermission. And then one of my professors after seeing the premiere was like, you got to get rid of that intermission. Like it's just, it takes people out of it. And it's such a short show. Like, why do you have the intermission? I was like, because I physically can't do the whole thing on my own. Cause it's just nonstop for, um, you know, a little over an hour. And so we ended up, um, writing in, um, it's an intermission for me, but not the audience. Basically, like it gives me physically a little bit of a break about mid-show. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm curious, I mean, obviously these are, these are two big 
issues in your life, one of your illness, and then you have this first relationship. What gave you the idea to put them both in the same show? Uh, so the story begins, and it was funny because my advisor on the piece at the time was like, is this real life? Or did you just make this up for dramatic effect? Referring to the line at the very beginning of the show where I say, the first day that I started feeling the symptoms of this illness is the first day we started dating, which is true. And so that kind of set itself up for those parallel stories to be told. Um, and that relationship, um, I had a lot of support from that person um, as this was all going on and it kind of, you know, I had someone to help me navigate during that time. And I really want to discuss the intersection of queer and disabled identities. And so I thought not just focusing on the diagnosis, but also focusing on the relationship that was happening throughout that diagnosis would be a good way to kind of bring that to light. Yeah. It's two sides of, of this personal journey that you were going on. Yeah. So we did the show for the first time. The premiere was in October for Dysonomy Awareness Month back in 2016. And it did really well. Um, We sold out all three nights before we even opened. So that was really exciting. And then we ended up doing a remount um, with the new edits when we found out we were going to New York City um, at a different theater um, on campus the next semester. And then we did a small like school tour and did it in a few places. And it got into a festival called the My True Colors Festival in New York City, which was part of the New York City Pride Festival. It was a queer arts festival. Since you touched on it briefly, I'm curious, since that first queer relationship that you had in college, how has that journey been for you? And I know it's, it, it ran parallel to your initial diagnosis and, and your health journey. But since then, in a more general sense, has your sexuality been something that you've been able to embrace more as the years have gone on? Yeah, I think that something that was really nice about dysfunctioning just fine, especially it being the very first professional gig that I ever did, was the fact that it told my story as a disabled person and it also told my story as a queer person. And it really, you know, kind of just put it out there that I'm queer and I'm disabled and, you know, that's something that people know about me. Um going into my whole career, which I think is good, going into it from a really authentic place and like living my truth. Um, Yeah, and I think I've definitely accepted that and embraced it more and more each and every day as time goes on. Through the creation of a one-woman show, Meredith was able to process and explore this personal and emotional discovery as well as confront the realities she would face as a performer. As a disabled artist, you know, if I'm being realistic, gigs are not always like coming my way. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a waiting game sometimes. And not everyone is super open to the idea always. And um, that just is what it is. Not to say that, you know, disabled people can't be successful and do a lot of work. Um, You know, there's definitely lots of great disabled talent out there, you know, doing 
a lot of cool things. But for me, something that became really apparent is in my career is that during those times, I need to be able to have control over my own career. And something that's helped me feel like I have control over my career is being able to create my own opportunities. And so mm-hmm. Dysfunction Just Fine came out of a place where I, you know, I had decided I'm going to pursue this path. I had made that decision, but not everyone was like, you know, on the train yet, right? And so <laughs> I, I struggled a little bit in college right after becoming a wheelchair user. Um, not to say that all my professors were like this. I had wonderful, wonderful professors, but you know, there definitely was an interest in me and my work when I first started school. And then as I started getting sicker, I noticed it kind of starting to drop off. And so Dysfunction Just Fine really came from a place of not being cast and being frustrated and being like, well, if no one's gonna cast me, I'm gonna cast me and I'm gonna make this show and I'm gonna make it happen. Each production of Dysfunctioning Just Fine was well-received. And with each performance, her confidence grew and the show got better. That by the time she got to New York for the My True Colors Festival, she received the Purple Skies Playwright Award for her writing. Which is remarkable considering she's fresh out of college and was barely beginning her professional career. And so the first month out of graduation, I was all day, every day, wearing three different hats in that production as the writer and the performer and one of the co-producers of that and just working nonstop every day. Um, And then we performed that in New York. And then three days later, I moved to Ohio. It was just, it was really post-graduation. The month after graduation was really a very whirlwind kind of time in my life. Meredith's senior year in college not only led to the creation of Dysfunctioning Just Fine, but was also where she discovered a dance company that would provide a pivotal moment for her as an artist and specifically as a dancer. I was actually doing research on the presence of disability in dance um, in college and through that research had found Dancing Wheels And um, during my winter break, my senior year, I flew to Ohio and I auditioned and I got the job on the spot and I came back second semester, already had a job in hand and that was a really nice feeling. It was back in 1980 that Mary Verdi Fletcher founded the Dancing Wheels Company in Cleveland. The Dancing Wheels Company is a professional, physically integrated dance company, so it's comprised of dancers with and without disabilities that are um, all training together and perform together. Mary was born with spina bifida and went on to become the first professional wheelchair dancer in the U.S. Through her company, she wanted to offer others with disabilities an equal access to the world of dance. 
Well, we look at um, how they've trained in the past, if they've had training. Um, many of them come from colleges, and so um, they're placed according to their experience level. So they could be an apprentice, or they could be a full-fledged company member, or perhaps a student. And so then they need the finer training of the technique in ballet and modern, and that's what they do. They train every single day, um, Monday through Friday. Basically, being in that job at first was really difficult. My body was not used to dancing four and a half hours a day, Monday through Friday, and, you know, touring as much as I was. We have um, 50 to 70 performances a year worldwide, so they're learning choreography, brand new choreography or restaged choreography every day. Integrating all different types of abilities, but I think it's you know important to note that wheelchair users were not uh, bound to our chair. Like our chairs are a form of freedom, and the company in itself um, and physically integrated dance as an art form, I should say, really kind of exemplifies that and how it can be used for all sorts of different purposes in creative ways. Society often uh, disables people through architectural barriers. And so, you know, as the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, came about, uh, we started to eliminate some of those barriers, both the architectural and stereotypic views. So that opened uh, the depths and breadth of uh, equality. Starting off with a really physically demanding job of being in a dance company, that really kind of set me up for success. And that was totally, you know, we were just talking about detours. That was such a detour. I never expected to, you know, really pursue dance in that way. Like I always just kind of considered myself a mover. And I, becoming more of a dancer really was something that came after becoming a wheelchair user, which I think is really interesting. Um, and not, you know, such a common path. <laughs> yeah. And you yourself sometimes need a wheelchair and sometimes don't. Is that correct? It just depends on where you're at. I assume your health goes kind of up and down in that respect. Yeah. So um, my health um, and my symptoms, you know, vary day to day. Um, I can walk for short periods of time, but um, if I go you know, out to the grocery store to go clothing shopping, you know, when that is safe to do so and all that. So um, generally when I'm out of the house, I use my wheelchair unless it's like a really quick um, something or something where I'm mostly going to be sitting, like going to a restaurant and it's close by and I won't have to walk there or anything. I pretty much always use my wheelchair when I'm performing um, just because at my worst I can perform in my wheelchair and I can't always perform standing. So it's just something that's mm. more um, consistent and um, easier to manage. Before you got your diagnosis, then were there times where did you ever fall or collapse on stage? Luckily, knock on wood, I have, um, it's only happened like during rehearsal. I've never had it happen during a show, but I was collapsing a lot and um, using a wheelchair was kind of a matter of safety in the sense that, um, I, I, you know, was falling, risking like getting concussions all the time. Um, also something that comes with my POTS is just 
chronic fatigue. And I, I'm able to conserve my energy using a wheelchair in a way that I no other treatment has um, really allowed me to. Mm. So it's pretty much the only thing that I've been able to find that has helped me still be able to perform. You'd mentioned about, you know, not everyone was on the same journey, the same supportive journey that you were on. And I assume that convincing casting and producers and those type of people of, of what you could do on stage was, was a hurdle for you at times. Yeah, I think um, something that I loved about doing the physically integrated dance thing before I really um, started focusing on musical theater more of the time. Um, I still was doing musical theater when I worked for Dancing Wheels. I would do like little gigs here and there. Um, I'd have, you know, rehearsal during the day for Dancing Wheels and then I would have rehearsal for a musical at night. It was um, just kind of fun being able to do it all. You know, you definitely burn yourself out if you do it too long like that. But after I did a lot of those gigs with them, it was on my resume. I started including more dance stuff on my resume. And I think one of the hardest things auditioning for musicals in a wheelchair is that most people have this idea that people in wheelchairs can't dance. So as lovely as I might sing in an audition, there's still that notion like, oh, well, how is she going to do the dancing? And they think that I'm maybe only going for a lead and I wouldn't take an ensemble role because I can't dance, quote unquote, or something like that. And really, the thing that helped me the most was just when I did get cast in shows, just working hard and, you know, kind of proving that people in wheelchairs can dance and just doing the best that I can, kind of like how I said in that educational setting, you know, just taking every gig, one gig at a time and just doing the best you can in that gig because, you know, when it comes to the next one, you've kind of started to prove yourself in, um, you know, I was starting to prove myself in Cleveland that like, oh, like, yeah, she's done this show. She's worked at this theater. Like, well, if she can, she obviously can do something if she's getting cast in these dance heavy shows like let's let's give her a dance call let's see what she's got like and so it's nice that um I think my work has kind of been able to speak for itself as opposed to me having to advocate so hard for myself and I would assume that are there times then that you have to work with the choreographer and say this is what I can do this is where I would need to do this instead of that how does that relationship work Yeah. So usually how I go about it, um, you know, just right off the bat in the audition is that when they are giving the combination, I just am translating it to what works in the wheelchair. And I've gotten a pretty extensive vocabulary um, and gotten a lot of practice doing that. So I've gotten a lot quicker at doing that. And most of the time, can figure out something in that dance call. So that's, you know, when I don't want to be bothering the choreographer too, too much in the middle of dance call, they've got a lot of people to see things like that. But once I'm in a show, um, I will do that as much as I can. But then when I have a question about something, I, you know, will go to the choreographer and ask something like, do you want me to translate this part? You know, do you want it to be my arm doing it? 
or do you want me to do um, what they're doing with their legs with my arm or something like that? And just so I want to make sure that when I'm translating choreography, I'm not taking away from the choreographer's intentions. And usually I have a pretty good relationship with choreographers in the sense that like, if they don't like something, they see like, you know, I have a very open line of communication. I always encourage them like, you know, I can change it. Just let me know. Um, And if I have questions, I'll definitely come to you so that, you know, we make sure that your vision is getting across even in this translated version. Has there been any, any pushback about you being in a wheelchair or being cast in a particular show? My experience has kind of just been in, you know, a dance call or something, a lot of staring, a lot of people kind of like, okay, like, what's this girl going to do? Like, and they just have no idea. And then, you know, once I start moving and grooving, they're like, oh, okay, like, that's what she's going to do. And I think it's just one of those things, like, people just don't really get what I do until they see me do it. You know, singing is exactly the same, acting is exactly the same, except I'm sitting. I mean, I think the dancing part is the part is that's the most different and the most challenging, the part where people have the most hesitation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's just one of those things like um, we've been saying how the work speaks for itself. And I don't, I think maybe at first people are skeptical maybe, but I think once I'm doing it and doing it with everyone and blending in, you know, in an ensemble, Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, okay, anyone could do this. I don't know why I ever questioned that. One of the most visible examples of performers in wheelchairs making it in this business comes from Allie Stroker. After graduating from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, Allie competed in the Glee Project and got second place, giving her the chance to have a guest-starring role on Fox's Glee, which already featured a person in a wheelchair as one of the main characters of that show. A few years later, she made her Broadway debut and also made history as the first actress in a wheelchair to appear on a Broadway stage in Deaf West's acclaimed revival of Spring Awakening. And then in 2019, she reached new heights as the first actor in a wheelchair to be both nominated for and win a Tony Award. That was for her performance as Ado Annie in the revival of Oklahoma. This award is for every kid who is watching tonight who has a disability, who has a limitation or a challenge, who has been waiting to see themselves represented in this arena. You are. Yeah, I think that um, Ali Stroker is a great example. And it's so, I'm so ecstatic that she has gotten the visibility that um, she has. I think that it's really good to see authentic representation on stage. And I think she really is a trailblazer in the, um, you know, disabled performing community. And um, it's funny that you brought up Glee um, because that to me is a not so great example. It's, it's good in the sense that 
there is someone in a wheelchair in a choir and that's cool. But what makes it not as great representation in my eyes is the fact that that individual isn't actually disabled in real life. Whereas you could have given a person with a disability an opportunity right there. Instead, we give it to someone um, who is able-bodied or non-disabled. And that's something that's really rampant in the performing arts community. I, I was reading the other day, I think it's low number. I want to say 2% of roles for like on screen or something are disabled. And 95% of them are played by able-bodied actors. The comprehensive study she's referring to was commissioned by the Ruderman Family Foundation and examined the frequency of actors with disabilities in the top 10 TV shows of the 2015 and 16 television season. In total, it looked at 31 shows across streaming platforms, cable, and broadcast networks and determined that only four actors with disabilities were cast, amounting to less than 2% of all actors on the screen. Jay Ruderman, president of the foundation, says, quote, By systematically casting able-bodied actors portraying characters with disabilities, Hollywood is hurting the inclusion of people with disabilities in our country. Yeah, so that definitely is a challenge um, in the sense that proving that having an authentic representation on stage is more valuable than having um, an able-bodied person play the disability. I think that's kind of a big thing in my work, I feel, is just, you know, just showing that this is an option. I think when people start realizing that there are tons of disabled performers out there, like you just, you just got to go looking a little bit. And, you know, casting directors who are like, well, we could look forever for a disabled actor or we could just take someone who's good for the role who, um, you know, was more easily accessible to us, um, I think is kind of a cop out, in my opinion. My work is a good mix of roles that weren't originally written for people with disabilities and a mix of roles that are specifically disabled people and um, they want disabled actors if possible. I think, you know, where I am right now and getting a lot of roles in like Cleveland and sometimes it's like, oh, we need a person with a disability. Like, how about that girl Meredith? Like, you know, like people know me and they know me as an actor in a wheelchair and there's like not too, too many of us in a smaller city like where I'm at right now. So, um, you know, sometimes it's a matter of, you know, people have seen my work in the past and, you know, getting called to do something. It's, it's good to kind of be able to get your foot in the door in that way, too. Meredith's frustration comes out not only as a performer and with some casting decisions, but also in her day-to-day life. As the Americans with Disabilities Act was celebrating its 30th anniversary this past summer, Meredith was interviewed by Youth Today, an international digital publication dedicated to examining the wide spectrum of complex issues in the youth services industry. 
she was asked what the ADA means to her. As COVID maintains a foothold in almost every country around the world, Meredith is grateful that the one bright spot has been the use of online and virtual resources to make life and work a little easier. However, before the pandemic, getting those resources wasn't usually available. There were definitely um, times where I wish I could have accessed classes. I I would miss class a lot um, because of um, my illness. And I had a note taker, and so I would get the notes from class, but especially... um, I always did my best, like if, you know, I was having a really rough day and I could only go to one, two classes, I made sure that those were, you know, the theater ones and the ones that in person where it's really important. And, you know, if maybe I had a lecture, like that's the one I'd get the notes from, like it just trying to conserve as much energy as possible in those times. Um, But it would have been really nice to just be able to watch the lecture, you know, from my dorm room or something like that is kind of some of the accommodations that I was told weren't possible. Now everything uh, higher ed looks like that now. So it's just, you know, it's frustrating, but also better late than never. Right. You know, that it, it, what happened happened. I can't dwell on the fact that I didn't have access to it, but now all my little disabled <laughs> babies <laughs> have them. So that's good. <laughs> And so you mentioned that this is a this is chronic, and so it'll just be good days and bad days going forward for, for the rest of your life, basically. Yeah, um, some people with POTS it goes away um, if it's caused by a virus. A lot of people will get mono and then get POTS, and in those cases where it's caused by a virus, it goes away. Um, I've had my POTS long enough, and there wasn't any virus that we know of that happened around that time. So it's unlikely that mine will go away. So um, it'll either, you know, stay constant where it has been, or it, um, it would just decline. And I don't know where it's going. So I can't worry about it. Honestly, at the end of the day, I just have to worry about the task at hand. Um, You know, I always I think, for me, I have that goal in preparing to work for someone else. But then I also always have a goal of something that's creating my own opportunity for myself. And that goal for me right now is trying to start my own nonprofit theater company. I really want it to be something that's um, accessible to other people with disabilities and have a lot of the opportunities be mostly remote in the way that things have been happening right now, not necessarily that all the performances would be virtual, although maybe some of them will be, but doing things like collaborating remotely for 80% of it. And then, you know, doing a workshop and being together for a month and working on it for that month. So trying to do more things like that. I think it really brings together my passion for helping other performers with disabilities and then also my passion for just traveling and being a nomad and being able to work from wherever and launching some educational opportunities for artists with disabilities as well through that. It is so wonderful that Meredith wants to use her experiences to create a base and a foundation of support and training for others. Certainly learning to live and work with a disability is both challenging and necessary. 
but there's also a lot of education and learning that needs to happen within the able-bodied community as well. My conversation with Meredith was certainly eye-opening for me. And if you enjoyed and got as much out of this as I did, then please share this episode with someone who you think could benefit from this conversation. If you want to share on social media, you can find Why I'll Never Make It at WinMe Podcast. A big thank you to Meredith and to you for joining me on today's episode. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and I also record, edit, and produce this podcast. Dylan Adams is the booking producer. Music on this episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can also find links to the various interview clips you heard today in the show notes. Coming up next, Meredith answers the final five questions. So join me then as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.